Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. Today, we are going to be continuing our conversation with Michael Trout. The topic that we have been speaking with him about is what's missing in clinical practice today. Michael is an amazing clinician and mentor of mine. Anybody who knows me very well at all knows how important his work has been to me in my own development as a therapist, um, beginning with um, his early work, um, just working with adults in state mental health centers, um, and then also what he's probably most known for is his work in the areas of infant mental health having studied with selma freiberg herself so he has since also moved on to doing some work in the arena of foster care and adoption he has a wealth of knowledge about pre and perinatal psychology I know you're going to enjoy this continued conversation I'm having with him. So please stay tuned and the next part of this interview series will be coming right up. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Michael, welcome back again today as we continue our conversation about what's missing in clinical practice today. Thank you so much for being with me. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, so just to catch folks up, what we were talking about was presence and holding and following and mentalizing. So that was our first portion. Um, We have some other ideas that we're going to be introducing in this segment. And the first one I just love, passion for discovery and endless curiosity and caution and modesty about diagnosing. They sort of all go together, but how would you like to start out on this? I I feel compelled to say, uh, perhaps just my mood this afternoon, but um, what a cool thing it is to be able to step back from our work and without too much anxiety and without fearing hurting anyone's feelings we can just think about what we do not not just to be self-critical but to be a little bit analytical 
kind of the way an old person would do. I like me, for example. <laughs> maybe that's one of the uh, good things about growing old. It gives one enough experience and enough time to just consider all that we've done. Not only all the dumb mistakes we made clinically, which most of us at one point in our life do, not just that. I mean, really in depth. What what did we do wrong? What did we stumble over? What did we miss? What did we forget to make a high value and have a show in practice? Anyway, I'm just feeling inspired this afternoon about how, what a cool thing that is we're doing. Yes. So this idea, passion for discovery, endless curiosity. Talk to us more about that. Tell us the importance of that and how to keep it alive. Well, part of part of this comes from the work of a few who have suggested that we forget to be dumb. We forget the joy of walking into a room, walking into our office or walking into a home visit, walking into a room with a child or with a parent or both uh, dumb with what Dan Siegel refers to as uh, intelligent ignorance. And I just want to encourage listeners to imagine the possibility that that can be a lot of fun. We don't have to be self-conscious anymore about knowing everything. And that opens some doors to this glorious state of curiosity, Uh, just passionately eager to acquire not only the data, uh, oh, I didn't know that, or my goodness, I that piece was missing about the history, but acquire perceptions on the part of the child or the parent and imaginations and narratives and storylines and interpretations they've made, uh, as well as everything they've done differently about the house since last time, the, the way they're dressing differently, the slight variations in interactions And it can just be a great deal of fun to be that open, that ready to be taught, uh, that curious. So I would I would encourage it for for people. Yes. Michael, how did you become such a keen observer? Well, partly, of course, it's it's by dint of the specific training I had, not the amount of it, but the specific training. And I'm saying not not to boast, but rather to suggest that those who have a very different kind of training that I'll mention right now may want to rethink whether they'd like to fill in some holes. Uh, In our training, we were obligated to uh, do a number of things. One of them was to spend as much time recording in writing the session as it took to do the session. In other words, we were obligated when we walked out the door and back to our car or back to our office to be ready to do a long sit down with ourselves and write everything that happened, Uh, not necessarily to capture a a sequence. That wasn't the whole idea, Um, nor was it necessarily to be exhaustive about he said, she said, but rather, um, and but it goes way beyond just a sense of the session. It was, we were required to capture what happened. And that does make one become very observant and very analytical. And then we were required to turn in those notes to a supervisor who was, the kind of supervisor that I admire and always wanted to be, tried to be, 
who is not someone just interested in how's it going this week, but someone interested really in every last detail of the session, one session at a time. So we'd have one hour to be with the patient, one hour to write up the notes, and one hour of supervision on all of that. And we had to tell the story all over again then, verbally, to the to our supervisor. And he or she, in my case he, would uh, ask endless questions, uh, would want to know, what did the porch look like? And were the cars moved from last time? And who was there this time that wasn't there last time? And if new people were there, were they in the room or not in the room? Did the phone ring uh, differently than it did last time, more or less? Or is there no phone anymore? Oh, it's disconnected. Oh, and they live in the woods, you say, with a disconnected phone and a car that doesn't run. Hmm, we're starting to see some, some things linking together. It would be that kind of a Q&A from my supervisor. And that also sharpens one's um, observing abilities. And then finally, uh, we were obligated to capture the nuances of the interactions. So we wanted to know not just what sort of mood was the baby in or the mother in, but what did they do with each other and when did they do it? So if the mother, for example, got up at 20 minutes after the hour and turned the TV up higher volume, what had just happened with the baby or what had just happened in her talk with you just before she got up and turned up the volume to the TV, which in itself seems innocuous and related to nothing, but in fact may be anything but. It may be her way of announcing that this is really important, what we just talked about, and I can't stand it. Or she may get up and turn down the TV or the radio as a way of saying, this is really important what I'm about to say, but I don't even know what I'm about to say because it's unconscious. And I don't even know that it's important, but I'm turning down the radio. Isn't that interesting? And now I'm going to tell you the following story. And one of the ways we learn which data are the most important is to look at those nuances of interactive behavior with the environment, between the baby and the mom, with the dad, between a, a, a parent of the teen mom in the other room and the mom and so on. So we were obligated to record all of that in our minds and tell that story too, because you can believe that neither my supervisor, Bill Schaefer, nor Selma were willing to take uh, half-baked pictures. They wanted it fully fleshed out. They wanted to feel as if they were there in the room. So you, in a sense, were held accountable. You oh. knew, I better have this story clear and details and remember it and be really prepared for for meeting with them and meeting with them was in itself not innocuous because it was always scary almost by design i i, I later thought um so that for example if we tried to fudge on the notes we'd always get caught by fudge i mean write things we didn't actually see 
write things that were our impression, but didn't exactly happen that way, but we sort of were expecting them to happen that way. And so we, we thought now that qualified as data. Mm-hmm. We'd have to we'd have to justify that and we'd be found out. And pretty soon we just learned not to do that. Stick right exactly to what happened and what did we see, not what do we think about it. We'll get to that later, my supervisor said. We'll get to what you think about it later. Right now, I want to know what happened. What did you see? Pretty soon, you get pretty good at seeing. You're very good at seeing. (laughs) I'm thinking about, I'm hearing some things from Phyllis Booth in my mind, in my training, even in looking at the Marshak interaction method, this videotaped interaction and this very strong emphasis on the difference between what you actually are observing happening versus your hypothesis. Like those are two really different things. Or, you know, when somebody says, well, I think da 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 and she would say, well, what what's your evidence for that? Like that's what you think about it, but tell me what, what did we actually see? What went on? And, uh, that is a, that is a, a discipline to like make yourself think that way. It is a discipline. And it's funny to to listen to your words just now, because it occurs to me that people like you and I, uh, particularly people like me who are more psychoanalytically oriented are often accused or at least thought to be non-scientific, maybe even anti-scientific, when in actual fact, what you just described is the scientific method. It is looking only at what is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, and so our listeners could be thinking, wow, didn't you have a luxurious training process? You could see a client and then write about the client for an hour and then talk about the client for an hour to someone else. And to that, I would say that's true. That's often not how centers are run today or practices, or you have to see, you know, seven or eight people at a time. But still, these ideas, I think, can still, obviously, that's why I wanted to talk with you about them. They matter today, even even if you can't practice it exactly like that. These things still matter, and we can do these things. And even if we don't do it, even if we don't do it exactly the way we did it in training, and nobody yes. does, I yes. did, you did, yes. one of us does, yes. we still have it implanted in us how to go about doing it. And mm-hmm. so we may shorten the time for notes because we, we get into private practice and pretty soon we're seeing uh, 25 or 30 patients a week and we're mm-hmm. doing lots of home visits and we write notes in the car on the way to and from and so on. So it all changes but it doesn't have to change in substance. We still are scientists who are recording data and who are reserving judgment and who are going slow in our imagination, uh, our leap to judgment. Uh, We can still do all of that. Michael, honestly, I don't feel like I learned any of that in graduate school. You learn theories. Yeah. And you might 
record sessions or something like that, but it's more about what you said or how you did. It's, I mean, there was no, there, I can't remember anyone ever talking to me other than you and child parent psychotherapy training, like Alicia Lieberman and Patricia Van Horn, but about watching what the heck is happening in this very careful way. <clears throat> I don't think clinicians are being taught. That. I wasn't. I mean, it, and, and I would imagine it, it hasn't gone the, more that direction. I would imagine it going even less that direction. Well, I'm with you. I, I was taught none of this in graduate school either. All of this training I just described happened afterward, mm -hmm. uh, years afterward. And, mm -hmm. and I suppose you're right. It probably isn't happening a lot. But I would urge clinicians to consider taking this in hand anyway. Yes. There's nothing to stop someone from making an arrangement, um, just as we were obligated to do, by the way, when we were in the project, with a neighbor or uh, uh, even a relative or some somebody you, you at your church in town, uh, allowing you to come sit with them for one hour a week for a year so you can watch their baby grow. That's the whole arrangement. Wow. And then, and then making arrangements, if you really feel luxurious about it, to pay your supervisor to, um, um, how shall I say, to quiz you on what you saw so that you have to tell the story to, to someone else. There's nothing to stop you from doing that. That's not very expensive, and it's not really that time consuming to force yourself to watch a baby in his first year of life. And it will sharpen those observational skills like nothing else does. And it is science. It is scientific. I'm, as you were speaking, I was imagining Mary Ainsworth in Uganda, in these villages and how she would watch these mothers and these babies and what the babies did when someone else came in and what the babies did when the mother left and how close the baby stayed to the mother and i mean it was it it couldn't be more scientific that that's how science operates you know so i think that this is such a good thing that we're talking about because it's so overlooked it's terribly overlooked. And contrast what you just described with the usual form of baby watching, baby looking, which is that the baby is taken to a clinic, either a physician's clinic or a psychological clinic because somebody's worried that something is wrong. And a psychologist or a social worker or a physician looks at the baby for a short period of time, maybe does a test or two, and then gives immediate feedback to the parents about what, what's wrong or what, what's right or what needs to be done, makes a prescription, if not for a medication, then for something else that the parents are supposed to do. And all that in what is, I think we could almost say an absurdly brief period of time, at least by comparison to the sort of baby watching I'm talking about. And it's all oriented towards solution. The baby watching I'm talking about is not oriented toward solution. We don't even name a problem necessarily. We just look. And if it occurs to us later that there's a problem, then we can get into that. But first, we must just look 
And we must force ourselves to not actually be thinking about solutions or diagnoses or categories into which into which to put this mother or this baby or this dyad. They're just people we're looking at and learning from. Watching and then the endless curiosity about what you're watching. Yep. What could it mean? Why did it happen just then? Why did it happen every other time, but not this time? You know, listen to, I urge the uh, listeners to listen to your words right now and contrast the, that, those words, that description of curiosity with that, the, the words that would go if what you were after actually was a diagnosis. Instead of wondering, what does this mean or what, what was the context? What, what do I hear might be a narrative for the child or for the parent? Instead, what do you call this? What box is this? What category is this? Mm -hmm. And I ask you, which of those is really the more scientific approach? It's true. Because we accomplish the feat of putting people in, in containers does not mean we've seen them. Wow, that's a that's a powerful statement right there. In, in, in fact, it could often mean the opposite. Yes. And by the way, parents will know that it's the opposite. Even as they are, and I've got to say this, though it pains me to say it, even as they are maybe relieved to not be looked at, to just be, be given a diagnosis for the baby. Uh, and and call it a day. They're often relieved. Uh, it's a lot less scary, frankly, to be given a diagnosis much of the time than it is to be given um, to be given the experience of having somebody really, really, really sit with you and look at you and look at your baby. Parents carry such worry about whose fault it is that when you tell them a name of something that it probably is, the thing is, it's often feels like a, a great burden lifted from their shoulders, even if it's false. Mm, I'm thinking about your latest book and wondering if there's an example you could share with listeners from that or from another case where what you observed really mattered like the you know you you notice this or you notice that and it i feel like a lot of the case studies you share that almost this thing that seemed innocuous becomes the linchpin that's what i feel like with with is there one that comes to mind just to to make this real for an actual case that you worked with uh, there does. Uh, it was the chapter we studied for a class I'm teaching on the book right now, studied this last week. And it's short enough, I think I can tell it very quickly. The parents were convinced, as was the family doctor who referred the baby and the parents to me, that he was uh, blind or at least had some sort of visual disorder. Uh, their contention, uh, supported by the doctor, was that he did not make eye contact. 
and he uh, seemed distant and aloof. Uh, parents were well-educated, not the, well, they were well-educated people, very articulate people, and invited me to come to their home. Uh, I'll be brief about what I saw because there was lots to see. But the short version was, lo and behold, he made a lot of eye contact, something they had not noticed, probably because when he did avoid eye contact, he did it so profoundly and probably for the parents so hurtfully that that's all they could, so to speak, see. They experienced his rejection of them. And that moment when he would avoid eye contact, he would turn his head 90 degrees to the side as if to avoid not only eye contact, but to avoid them utterly, was when he was going from one person to another. One person to another. So when mom would pick him up from the crib, he would turn his head distinctly to the side and avoid her face. When uh, mom would hand the baby to dad, that baby would do exactly the same and so on. But what I noticed as an outsider was that at other times when he was seated securely on somebody's lap, he would make a lot of eye contact, he even made eye contact with me. And so now we're stuck with a kind of a um, scientific dilemma. The data are now confounded and we can't figure out what's happening. And at some point during that session, the parents told me that this child was actually their second child, so to speak. But the other one they never got. Turns out this child was adopted. I didn't know that till I got there. Somehow that was not thought to be essential to the story of his being visually impaired. He was adopted. They had an earlier plan to adopt another child from a, an adolescent mom. They had met the mom, worked all the details out with her, and even worked out the name of that child, which they then painted on the wall of the nursery that child was going to be in. On a, there was a dad painted a rainbow on the ceiling and painted the child's name in the rainbow. At the last minute, that mom uh, flew the coop and they did not adopt that child. They were bereft, although they, they didn't say so. Dad just acted huffy and angry when telling me the story. He was very angry about the amount of money he'd spent giving, uh, paying for the mother's prenatal care and so on. Um, the birth mother didn't say much about it. They just went out to a movie that night, they told me, and didn't quite know what to do with themselves. A couple of days later, the child welfare worker called them and said, I've got a substitute for you. I've got a new one. And the new one is the child that they got now that I'm sitting with in their kitchen. And this is the child that they say won't look at me. Upon telling me that story, mom puts this little tidbit in. Sometimes I think I don't want him to look at me. Well, this is an altogether new piece of data. It, didn't, it, it, it is astonishing to me, especially if I think we're only there to look at a visual impairment. She doesn't want him to look at her. Why is that? I'm afraid he will see that I'm thinking about the other baby. And so we now begin to talk about their loss. 
All this in the space of one session, by the way, the very first session, oddly, we begin to talk about their loss, which dad continued to continues to deny, but mom begins to acknowledge and even begins to tear up, which then leads us into wonder about whether this baby on their lap has also had a loss. Oh, they hadn't thought about that. He lost his first mother. And what do we imagine were the circumstances of that loss? And I do, began to draw them a picture, only only wondering now, we're not concluding anything. But I said, I wonder if he ever, because this happens sometimes, if he ever um, was in his mother's arms and then was put in somebody else's arms, and when he looked back, his mother was gone. In fact, I wonder if that ever happened and she was gone permanently. He never saw her again. And I wonder if he was then put in the in the arms of a foster mother, which I knew that he was, learned that he was, and never saw his birth mother again, but was now in a new person's arms. And the next thing he knows, he's being taken from her and given to you, and he looks back and she's gone. So I wonder if he was a very smart and adapt adaptable baby, would he conclude this thing where you're going from one person to another is very dangerous. Transitions equal losses. When I go from one person to another, the person I just left may never be there again. Mm. Would that be a good time to, to just look away, to not see them? And that way I don't have to suffer that loss. Now mom's really crying. Because it occurs to her not only that she's forgotten to have empathy for this child, but it occurs to her that she and her husband and the baby are all in the same boat. They've all had a loss, and it's all been about babyhood. Hmm. Needless to say, the final discovery was uh, and now confirmed uh, to by the amazed pediatrician who couldn't figure out what happened that the child has no visual impairment at all. He sees just fine. And he stopped that thing where he turned his head away when going from one person to another because mom started talking to him about what he had lost and she was so sorry and she hadn't thought about it before and so on. The closest dad could get was to stomp about the kitchen at the very end of that session and about... The, did I know how bad the paint was at Menards? And I couldn't catch on to what he meant at first, but he said, when we got this baby, I'm trying not to use a name, I thought I should paint over the rainbow and the name of the other baby. So I did. Well, wouldn't you know it? That crappy Menards paint, it showed right back through as soon as it dried. <clears throat> That's a rough, tough, southern man's, football-playing man's way of saying, saying something about his own grief. I can't stop experiencing the old baby. Mm. So now the whole family comes together, and we don't have a blind child. How easy it would have been to just join forces with the diagnostic. Yes. Uh, Such an incredible story. Yeah. yeah. I can't help also, but not 
Well, yeah, it is related to the story that a lot of adopted persons feel weary of, and maybe even adoptive parents, the rainbows and unicorns narrative. Yeah. Wow, here, here it was actually painted on the wall that that's, that's what the story was supposed to be. Well, listeners, I am so pleased that you have joined us again. Please tune in next week um, as I continue this conversation with Michael about hunting for narratives. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 